1: Welcome to another episode of the Nerdist Podcast Filled with semi-organized sounds for your listening slits The Nerdist Podcast Live is on tour Matt, Jonah, and I are coming to a region near you Probably, hopefully We're going to be in Northampton, Massachusetts on November 30th January 6th is our rescheduled DC date at the 930 Club And then, very soon, next week in fact We're going to have a bunch more dates that we're going to be announcing So get details for these and all other shows at Nerdist.com I would like to take a moment in this intro to thank the shit out of you Guys, if you listen to this podcast with any regularity You probably watch the Nerdist TV show which aired on BBC America uh, And I want to thank you for that because BBC America has announced That we are doing five more Nerdist TV specials over the course of the next several months uh, They're going to follow some really cool uh, event programming that they're going to be having uh, The first one will be on Christmas Eve on December 24th Just in case you forgot when Christmas Eve is uh, and then throughout uh, next year. So these are going to be a super, super, super fun. We're going to plan a lot of big stuff for these. So you'll get more details for these uh, as, as time marches on. But it, I just wanted to say a, a sincere thanks. Because it's obviously a dream for us to get to make this show. Because it's exactly what we love doing. So uh, thank you. Some people come to me and they say, hey, Chris Hardwick, how do you produce podcasts? And I say, well, a lot of times it's with the help of sponsors like this one, hover.com. This episode of Nerdist is brought to you by Hover. It's domain name registration made super, super, super simple. You go there, their UI is really clean. All they do is register domains for you. They don't try to sell you a bunch of other crappy services that you don't need. You can set up email addresses, forward email addresses, redirect domains to other website addresses, create URL extensions, set privacy controls. It's all with just a few clicks. Uh, So please go to hover.com. That's H-O-V-E-R. Try their domain management service. They make it easy for you to transfer your existing domains over to Hover, just enter the name or URL that you want to transfer, and then Hover gives you the next steps and tracks the progress as the URL is transferred. So these guys are great. If you need to get a new domain, go to hover.com, H O V E R, use the offer code NERDIST. And now the NERDIST Podcast, episode number 140. Holy shit, 140. Yeah. One of my favorite comedians, uh, a super nice guy that I've known for two decades. It's Dana Gould.
0: Now entering nerdist.com.
2: I just love those Super Serious Show pictures. Those large been, format polaroids. i
3: Super Serious Show pictures my 8 by 10 for like, it, 10, it's like three years. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> put I've your,
1: heard. put your mouth up next to that mic. Mm.
2: Let's yeah. see how you sound. That's why I wanted to do that show.
1: Hey. Oh no, it's got to aim at you like a bullet, like a gun. Will it, uh, yeah. How's that? Oh yeah, you got better. it. First- Dana J. Gould is here in the studio. In my old,
3: in my old neighborhood. But used to live around here. When I first moved to LA, I lived literally right around the corner.
1: I think we got it, Nick. I think you we. I think uh, we yeah. got it. We were first able to. We, we, were able to way, we, we were able to make it stay in a way. The microphone. Yeah, let's hang on to that though, because yeah. we'll need yeah. it again if yeah, that's all right.
3: Thanks, Nick. If not to stab a zombie in the eye. <laughs> yeah, oh,
2: actually, in the ear, original Dawn of the dead style. It's right, yes. right, so right, it, right, right as into the it pulls ear. Pulls up into yeah. the ear.
1: Good access to the brain that way. Yeah, yeah, right in.
2: Yeah. Slowly.
3: Here's here's there was this was actually a a New York Comic Con commercial, which didn't make sense. Flesh eating zombies are here to eat your brains. Well, they' I thought they were flesh eating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brains are for desserts. <laughs> brains are for dessert. Yeah.
1: Listen, they, they they can't get to the brain without enjoying some of
2: the
3: flesh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> make make up your mind, please. The zombies
2: just ask you. So it's like, could you just. Please release the brain. I, the, I, just, I
3: honestly think the brains thing came from The Simpsons. I actually I, brains? brains? Oh no. It uh it the first
2: time I ever saw it come up was in uh uh Return of Living Dead. Oh yeah. Sure. Brains. Yeah, more brains. brains yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh they eat brains to stop the pain. The pain of what? The pain of being dead. Pain
1: of being dead. Yeah. That's the something in the fluid. But uh but but zombies on the Atkins diet will don't eat the skin, they just go
2: right to the brain. <laughs>
3: Yeah.
1: They just go right <laughs> yeah. to the brain.
3: Zombies, yeah, well that would be the ultimate thing. They're fancy.
2: Would. It's like the caviar. Yeah. And the, uh, yeah. That
3: would be a great just a quick thing is like a zombie checking itself out in a store window. <laughs> <be> a great... <laughs> <laughs> it's time for that. Does my ass there's look your, big? It's actually no.
1: mostly rotted away. So <laughs> yeah. no.
3: The mm. voguing dead.
1: I'm so, <laughs> I'm so glad that uh, you're finally on the podcast. I'm sorry it took me so long to get you on here, Dana Gould. That's that's my fault.
3: Me too, Chris. What the fuck? Now my, it's time to fight. Now I can't wake up every morning and go. Hardwick is my enemy.
1: <laughs> well, you can. Well, I can find another reason to to help create the. I think it's important for we to have a nemesis, and then that's good.
3: <laughs> it's, it's true. I feel weird without an enemy.
1: Keeps you on your toes. Keep you on your toes. It's I have many nemesis. Do you? Yes. <laughs> Well, you seem to be Matt's nemesis sometimes. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Lovable.
3: That's when I was a kid, my, my older brother was my enemy, and now that he's no longer my enemy, there's an odd void in my life. You're a little off kilter. Wasn't there a uh I, f- I think there was
1: a guy maybe on Craigslist who said, you know, I will be your nemesis. It was an ad, and then someone or was it was that a web video? I think I I'm starting know. to mash up weird memes in my head. <laughs> well, that was
3: the whole point of that was that great monologue in the otherwise <clears throat> poorly mishandled unbreakable. Yeah, about how we need each other. and We're going to do a movie about how it would be like if there were superheroes and supervillains in real life, and then we'll have no one behave the way they behave in real life (laughs) just to completely ruin the whole point of the movie. Well, what bummed me out
1: about that movie was that... It started, it existed, and it ended. (laughs) So there you go.
2: Did you like Sixth Sense?
1: I did.
3: Well, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was going
1: to say, I wanted to see... Like I'm sure in his mind he thought I'll leave it open ended so people never know and I'm like well I you wa- kind of want to know like mm-hmm. I wanted to see his kid shoot him in the kitchen and then have the bullet bounce off and be like oh fuck you know yeah.
3: it's sad there are movies and there are movies another one is uh, is uh, uh, Mars Attacks where I go oh golly I wish I'd made this yeah <laughs> I would have I would have done the joke. <laughs> I yeah. would have told the joke properly.
2: Or not stacked a bunch of jokes on top of well, each other to muddle the entire thing. Yeah,
3: Mars Attacks, you need a straight man and then a funny man. You mm-hmm. need Abbott and you need Costello. You can't have wacky aliens fighting slightly less wacky humans. Yeah. If you took... and Tom, uh, the, uh, Actually, Tom Kenny. I was talking about this with Tom Kenny. The voice of SpongeBob SquarePants.
2: He's been the, on the podcast. And the Ice King and from the, yeah. Adventure Time.
3: And a guy that I used to deliver lunches with. Really? In our crappy day job in Boston uh, years ago. Um, if you took the aliens from Mars Attacks and edited them into Independence Day in place of the aliens there, that's the movie. Yeah. Oh, that would be awesome. If the people are playing it straight as a heart attack. Yeah, and the Martians are crazy and don't care. Then it's actually <laughs> funny. But that's instead what... you get the hilarious Glenn Close. And the gut-busting Jack, Jack Nicholson, Nicholson. playing with Jack Nicholson and Jack Nicholson. Oh Lord! <laughs> yeah, two roles in that one. But
2: that, I loved that's... Martin Short in that
1: movie, though I thought Martin Short was pretty great in yes. Mars Texas yes.
3: But it was such a such a like just like God, why aren't I laughing? Well, yeah. I want to laugh. I want to laugh so hard. But that's the thing with those movies.
2: It's like you know the uh, the comedy genre movies were just that's why Shaun of the Dead was so good. Is because like you know the. the people reacting very funny towards a serious yeah, zombie situation. Exactly.
3: When the monsters don't know they're in a comedy, it works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. American Werewolf, werewolf in, in London, London, same thing. Yep.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that. Oh, such a great movie. One of the best yeah.
3: movies. Um, in fact, I was with the werewolf earlier this week.
2: I showed them the picture. We already saw I oh, showed you. them the picture <laughs> when we were in New York. I was like,
3: look, it, look, it, look, it, look, uh, look, <laughs> I was going to dine out on that picture right now.
2: <laughs> well, it's a podcast, so.
3: Yeah, <laughs> true. I'm holding my phone up to the mic.
2: <laughs> Describe it. It's <laughs> yeah. a
3: wolfy character. Well, my friend Bob Burns is sort of like a famous collector. Mm-hmm. And he has all of this stuff in his house. His house is just like a mi- mini museum of memorabilia. I mean, literally, the day there, they're, he's doing a documentary is a documentary is being made about him. There. Oh, wow. That's the sentence. <laughs> uh, sorry, I had a stroke. That's okay. I smell pennies. <laughs> no, it's fine. You're fine. You look okay. <laughs> His face is drooping. His face
2: on one side.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I went over there to, to do it, and I was with the werewolf from American War in London. The alien queen from Aliens is there. The flying saucer from The Day the Earth Stood Still is hanging <laughs> from the ceiling. Sounds like
1: a sitcom. The, la- the yeah.
3: last extant creature from the Black Lagoon suit. And more than anything, I held in my hand A gift to Bob from the Mercer Special Effects Studio, the 35-cent Lindbergh UFO commercially available model kit that a little director named Ed Wood (laughs) put in a little movie called Plan 9 from Outer Space.
2: How did someone even find that? Why why wasn't that stuff burned after they made that movie? Uh, It
3: was just Bob was a fan living in L.A. in the mid-50s, knew everybody. They said, yeah, you have this? Sure, I'll take
2: it. Holy shit. Wow. Do you
1: know Rich Carell? I do. Rich Carell is a guy who uh, his uh, I think he was on Leave it to Beaver when he was a kid uh-huh. and then he became a television director and has spent a large portion of his fortune from television directing which is very lucrative by the way Uh, in all seriousness, it really is. If you direct a pilot and that pilot gets picked up, you get money every week week that show is on. Whether or not you touch another episode again. Jim Burrows,
3: Jim Burrows, who, you know, did that for shows like Cheers and (laughs) Frasier. (laughs) I mean, literally, it's just like they eat leaves and shit money. Yeah. just like.
1: (laughs) So Rich Carell is a horror fanatic and has, uh. And he lives in this, this kind of mansion-y house, and every year he sort of brings out his horror collection, but he has, like, one of the original Exorcist dummies. Whoa. Like, he's he's got some insane stuff in his collection. I'm sure he has a bunch of ape stuff, as Planet of the Apes stuff as well. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Blort. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, uh, uh, actually... Rob Zombie had one of the Ape, one of the original apes costumes and wore it one year for Halloween.
3: What? Yeah. I'd be scared the, that it would fall you do apart. That?
1: Don't do that.
0: Don't do that. I wear have one it. of the
3: original have, well two now. I have uh, the the pullover extras masks, like yeah. the crappy chimpanzees. But I got it in the, in the weirdest way. The way I got it was what was great. Um, my wife and I, we used to live behind the Chateau Marmont, mm-hmm. and uh, our neighborhood had a parking problem, and we were having a little community neighborhood meeting, and there's this guy named Dan, this older guy named Dan, and he's talking about the parking from Dublin's was the <laughs> bar giving <laughs> well, us Well, that, a is, that is dating that conversation. Yeah, did, well, yeah. it was about 10 years ago, yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and I look at him, and then I walked up to him later, and I went, excuse me, are you Dan Striebeck? <laughs> who was the head of the Fox makeup department in the late 60s that I knew from reading Starlog and Famous Monsters and everything. And it was like I, he stepped back like I slapped him almost. It was just that, <laughs> he was that surprised. He was like, yes, I am. And I was like, oh, my God, I know who you are. And blah, 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 And he goes, oh, that's great. Four days later, ding dong. And I talked to him, you know, I told him uh, my apes fandom and stuff. Four days later, my doorbell rings open the door and he's there and he's got an extras chimpanzee mask and a gorilla appliance. And he just goes, here, you should have these. If you like the stuff, though, so much. I just got it in my house. Oh, my wow. God. And I was like, no, I can't take it. I don't want it. <laughs> so did
1: you put the mask on and then blow him? Because that seems like the only acceptable I, thing to do at that point. The
3: mask on I did put the mask on. And what happened was, then I exhaled without taking into account that For 20 years, the latex had been been off-gassing in the muzzle, and and the muzzle is then designed to funnel all of that chemical detritus up into my eyeballs, and I was literally like bent over full at the waist, as if if on a hinge, and I think I said like, "Mm and I thought, what a way to go blind.
2: Yeah, still the happiest one of the happiest moments of your life, right?
3: Yeah, but I, I vigor- yes, I did. I vigorously tore it off. Oh my wow. god! You're, yeah. you're, you're. I wish there was footage of that because I must have looked pretty, pretty great.
1: <laughs> there are so many things I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about your obsession with Ed Wood and Planet of the Apes and just sort of your comic book uh, 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 and, and Comic Con. Um, Uh, obsessions but also i want to talk to you about uh, stand-up as well and then maybe a little bit of the simpsons and then you know but
2: and also your joel hodgson um husker do story okay that's a great story what's the joel hodgson husker do story
3: very very quickly um joel hodgson of mystery science theater uh we were uh when he was living in st paul minnesota when he was just mystery science theater was then a local show called mystery science theater 2000 Mm -hmm. that was just on uh television in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and he had a workshop warehouse in St. Paul where he built toys and stuff, and uh, Crow and Cambod all came out of there. And next across the hall was the rehearsal space for the band Husker Du, Uh (laughs) Uh, and they were just friends, and so I was over there, and they were like, hey, they're having a listening party. Uh, for their new album, I think it was Warehouse, named after the warehouse where their spaces were. <laughs> sure. So let's go over. And it's me and Joel, and we're just like dorky jackballs in cargo pants and a bunch of Minneapolis scenesters. And the thing about Who's Could Do like they attracted scenesters, but they weren't. They were just dorky guys. Mm-hmm. And so Joel was standing in front of the stage... Bumming out all the hipsters by playing very aggressive air guitar. <laughs> <laughs> which I then immediately joined in on. And to the and it was great because they were dying with laughter. The hipsters were so bummed out that dorks were ruining their hipster private invitation <laughs> only party. And it was only made worse when Joel looked at me and at one point went, after a song, when to get really quiet. The girls aren't looking. Make your guitar bigger. And then we, <laughs> like, fully extended our arms and we're playing. And they were uh, Grant Hart and those and uh, Bob Mould and those people were uh, laughing very hard. Um, and that was really when I I, I met Joel uh, just before um, Mystery Science Theater happened. And, and it was it was great because it was sort of like, yeah, I'm I'm in that group. Yeah. You know, when you're kind of coming around, coming of age, and you don't really know what group am I in?
2: Yeah,
3: I'm not in this. I'm not in the hip group. And there was the hip group, and there was like the tough guy comic group, sort of like the yeah, you know, the smooth dude group.
1: Who was in that group?
3: Uh, I don't want to name names. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. But it was, you know, guys, that, guys that would guys that leave the house in sweatpants, sure, kind of deal. And uh, and I didn't feel comfortable with them. And then I met Joe. I was like, oh yeah, that's that's my group. Every well,
2: time I see a guy with sweatpants on outside during the day, I just imagine that he fucks all the time. he's yeah. just, he gotta, needs to just wear, yeah. no underwear
1: underneath. Nothing. Yeah. Just I, ready to go. When
2: I worked at the record store in Venice Beach, I would see that a lot. Just a couple coming in just in sweatpants. Yeah. And I was like, you guys fuck all the time. Yeah, probably. we're taking
1: a fuck break. And these yeah. are the easiest yeah. way to
3: yeah. do yeah. that. yeah. So what do people do when they're not fucking? I don't know. I guess they get a lemonade. All right, let's do that.
1: (laughs) And the elastic around the ankles collects any uh, residual dripping that uh, that occurs. They're perfect pants, and they're made of basically cloth. They're they're just like they're like towel pants. Yeah, towel pants. Yeah, yeah,
3: that's exactly there. It's like walking around in your beat-off rag.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just wore them because they didn't fit into the Husky Kid pants. Hey, hey, hey. Husky
3: and Tough Skins. <laughs> the, the pants made of shame. Tough skin. That's what I had to wear. I, hu- husky Tough Skins. I'm fat and poor. Yeah. Yeah.
1: These these pants, they're basically the name is telling you that they're so durable that your chubby little body won't fuck yeah. them up. <laughs> that's yeah. a, Tough skins.
3: You're poor and Or fire. as my mother would
1: say, it's so your waist gets bigger.
0: You know, you'll yeah. fit in the pants.
3: Oh, oh
1: geez, she was planning on... Hey, she knows. Yeah, She's yeah. a wise woman. Come here. Mama's <laughs> little angel needs another pie. What? Why are you doing this to <laughs> An me? An entire pie. Come on. You got to fit in the tough skins. You need oh. carbs. <laughs> well, I, first, uh, I, I had been a fan of your comedy... Um, in the '80s, and then I met you. <laughs> I really was though, because there, there was
3: so old. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It, it sucks. It so sucks. Fucking old.
1: It sucks. It sucks. I'm not that much younger than you, and so no, you're not. Um, but
3: uh, I'm not. I'm old. I'm not that old. I just started crazily young. I started when I was 17. Oh shit! And I was a working touring middle by the time I was 21. But, you're, but you're,
1: you you're, had a voice in comedy for me that, you know, so much of the 80s comedy boom was about very low impact, you know, comedy first, no real substance, but just like, hey, we're just going to distract people in comedy clubs so they Seinfeld buy drinks Sein- and food during the Reagan years. Yes. Yeah.
3: Seinfeld was the, you know, uh, progenitor of that with the suit jacket sleeve rolled up to the elbows. And it was all... And it was... I mean, he happens to be excellent at it, but it was a celebration of minutiae. And people forget it was so common back then. There was a sketch on SNL about it when Tom Hanks was on SNL a Stand lot. Stand Up and Win? Yeah, well, they had that, good. here she comes, and there she goes. Yeah, I mean, it was basically mm-hmm. I remember that people sketch. doing Seinfeld. Yeah. And then once he got on the sh- show Seinfeld and it found its voice all that sort of style became codified as like, no, that's great. But for a long time, it was it was almost a cliche, not because of Jerry, but because of the legion of sub-Jerrys right. that were all over the place. It was a really <laughs> facile thing to rip off if you were an uninspired performer.
1: Legion of Sub-Jerrys is my Grateful Dead cover band. <laughs> legion
3: of Sub-Jerrys
2: yeah. is my uh, chat room name. It's all uh, little people, right? <laughs> yeah, it's the little Dead.
1: people playing Grateful, we'll
3: Grateful Dead. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, mm. but, uh, that was the original name of Jerry's Kids from the MDA. Sub jerrys and it was that <laughs> was the telephone. Sub, sub in height, age, and genetics. We're trying to create
1: <laughs> a legion of sub jerrys <laughs> uh, uh, The
3: legion of sub Deans. the People well, that can't walk.
1: Welcome, to the the, uh, welcome to the legion of sub jerrys <laughs> But uh, <laughs> but but your comedy to me was always I always gravitated toward it for for several reasons. Number one. Because you the the bits were longer story bits and you actually were talking about real things that you were dealing with yes. and finding comedy in that. And also in in my mind you were the master of of what I describe as like there's an eloquent filth to some of the things that 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 you write and and it made me Yes. <laughs> well because I always I always start writing from the I I always go right to filth and I always beat myself up about it like no 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 not again but but you do it in such a way that makes me feel like oh no there is a way to do it where it's okay and oh, it's yeah. still funny and still you know
3: well, that's also, you know, that came from a lot of, you know, all of that stuff. None of that stuff in anybody's style is ever intentional. Uh, it's always uh, what uh, you, how you develop, and and then people ascribe what they think it is after the fact. I never set out to do anything different. I was just like, this is the way that I'm funny. Yeah. Um, I certainly ripped off, you know, like El- El- Albert Brooks's stand-up. If you listen to the stand-up sections of Comedy Minus One. Mm-hmm were a huge impact on me because I realized I didn't have to write a bit about, you know, pens. He just talked about going on stage at a Richie Havens concert or doing it. And it was just a way of talking about his life that it was like, oh, what an easy way to come up with material. If I just wake up and do shit, I'll have material. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, there's a guy named Bo- uh, from Boston named Kenny Rogerson, who I took a lot from, not in material, but in just of his... He loved dark shit the way I love dark shit, and and he sort of showed me a way to talk about dark stuff in a way that was funny and not just uh, like dead baby jokes. Right. You know. Um,
1: Although you do have one of my favorite dead baby jokes of all time. <laughs>
3: I do. I didn't even. Know you I said it on one. stage
1: at Largo once, and I felt like it was a thing that you may have never said again.
3: I, I, I can assure you, it probably is.
1: This was probably ten or eleven years ago. You said uh, you were talking about Whoopi Goldberg, and you go, "Whoopi Goldberg's about as funny as coming home from a dead baby's funeral and seeing its toy box in the living room."
3: Yes. <laughs> and, uh, that, that, no, that actually—that's my dad's joke. Oh, geez. my dad frequently says. My father frequently says, "About as funny as a dead baby's toy box." <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's that's oh. really funny. That's my father's. And that always
1: that Still was one of, that was one of those ones that just latched onto my brain, and I'm like, I will never forget that as long I, as I live. I like
2: that because it's not necessarily about the dead baby; it's about the results of it and just being at home after in the aftermath. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so a great
3: way a- to sum up that with with eloquent filth. I mean, that that leads you to eloquent filth, and I, you know, I'll give you an example of like the way that I could never do something painful. And then I would see Kenny talk about his stuff was all sort of like a darker Stephen Wright. It was and and like fictitious whimsy like he would do a Here's a Kenny Rogerson joke. Great comedian, still working, uh, lives in Boston, I believe. Uh, Sometimes I like to go to the laundromats with the big glass doors on the machines, and I'll just throw in like a doll's head, couple arms, and walk around going, has anybody seen Katie? (laughs) Uh, And I was just like that, kind of like, oh, I like that laugh because it's uncomfortable. But I would do a thing where I would talk about my girlfriend broke up with me, but she's moved on, and I'm happy, and she's happy, and then I would just stop and be really quiet for like... 20 seconds, (laughs) Uh, because that's great, because now you have the audience's attention because they don't know if you've really snapped or if you're pretending to snap, and they don't know what's coming next. Surprise is the strongest tool in the comedian's toolbox. And then I would go. No, she's fucking right now. <laughs> oh, I can feel it. I can feel it. And then I would just like bend over the waist and start rubbing my. It's like she's fucking me. Now, how do you get away? Because uh, and then, oh, you- well, let me. Get, <laughs> and then I would like fall down, and then and then I go. No, who am I kidding? I'm sure they're done. Lying there, <laughs> lying there, in the warm, loving afterglow, as she wipes the cum off his dick with an old photo of me, <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that you would like assemble. Like, uh, like, like, how would Philip Roth write this? And he's just like, what's the what's the harshest image I can conjure? That is such a difficult line
1: to walk, though, because so many, particularly comedy club audiences. Are a little pre-programmed to immediately just go Ugh, before you even finish what you're saying. Yeah. So how
3: do you how do you keep them authority? Yeah, authority. I mean, the great thing about taking long pauses and maintaining it's all crowd control. And if you and I had the good fortune of starting out in Boston, which is really a rough comedy town. I mean, the audiences are if you better be good real quick or they'll kill you. You know, it's a lot like London in a way. It's oh, like, yeah. It's a very contact sport for them. Mm-hmm. And it's not like where I moved later to San Francisco where you go on stage and everybody is in a beret and applauding politely and three people are starting your fan club. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's like, you know, you go on stage and there's a guy doing a cat abortion in the front row and, uh, you know. Uh, so you got to really get their attention quick. Uh, so you learn to have very good muscles in terms of crowd control. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you just stand there and stare down the crowd and let them know that you are not afraid of them and that you are in charge uh, and you don't, you don't need to talk to do that. They'll, you can tell Mm -hmm. you can tell Uh, that's how you do it. And that's really fun. I mean, I, I, to this day in my act, I always have something that I will do where the audience gets lost. Like they don't know what I'm doing and they don't know what's coming next and they get off center uh, and that's great because it really just affirms, no, I'm in charge. You're I, here. I
1: I'm think you're sort of the father, I, I think the sort of godfather of, I see a lot of you in that sort of what ended up being called the alternative comedy movement of, that started around 91. I see yes. a lot of your voice trickle down to some very famous comedians within <laughs> that world. You mean Be-
0: people who make more money than
1: <laughs> <laughs> But I see, and I even see, you know, I mean, I, I will readily admit that you're someone that I l- sort of get in my head sometimes when I'm writing, like, that's, "Oh, this is a
3: But that's how you do it. That's, I know. That, you know that's, I guess, that's, but that's how, no, that's 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 exactly how it works. But it's it's
1: more know? of a it's more of a writer's approach to comedy rather than a clown's approach to comedy, where you can create comedy by weaving this really incredible imagery together yes. without having to have like a like. Ah, here's a bunch of things. And here's the joke. like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's all about taking people on this really, really wonderful journey that through through, you know, through a story with with just the words and the metaphors and the and that yeah. and that's that's something that i that I love,
3: oh, that's great. no. and and I th- also think, I mean, I was certainly uh, uh, doing it. I, I was one of the when the alternative movement started. Here in LA in the '90s, I was one of the few people that would do all of those shows, and then also go over to the Improv Mm -hmm. and do it in a straight club, or go on the road because I was of of all the people that started in our little group of like me and Janine Garofalo and Kathy Griffin and Bob Odenkirk and David Cross and um, that little group. I was the only one that really worked regularly in comedy clubs. Because mm-hmm. you then started later, there, and then Andy Kindler and and all those people. I'm leaving out names, but I'm just, literally, it was uh, my it was uh, your social group. It but was the people I went to movies those with. Janine's like like the Janine Cross group. You had already been a touring comic
1: before that scene, and yes. I, I think that scene of Janine and David and all those guys and Kathy and Greg Barrett, like that sort of evolved out of, well, we can't perform in clubs or we don't want to perform in clubs, well, so we're just going to perform.
3: Having been there <laughs> the day <laughs> of the conversation, I'll tell you exactly what it was. Holy shit. Um, it was Janine uh, having the very astute observation that in L.A. there was no place to experiment because um, you go to the improv and you want to write and do some new stuff and then you find out, oh, great, Jim McCauley from The Tonight Show was there and he saw me tank because I was trying something new. Um, And so we wanted a place to bomb if we had to bomb. Um, And that's all it was. And the other thing, it was just quite simply, by that point in time, the comedy boom of the 80s and early 90s had really, as I've said before, reached its point of putrescence. (laughs) and. Comedy fans weren't in comedy clubs because they were the least funny <laughs> entertainment option. Right? It was you know it was just like there are three comedy clubs in every town and and someone said this I think this was Jerry Seinfeld's story. The arc of the comedy boom in the in the 80s was in the early 80s you'd bump into somebody and they'd go what do you do and they go well I'm a comedian you go, oh, that's really interesting. What's that like? And in the in the mid to late 80s, it'd be like, what do you do? And you go, I'm a comedian. And they go, oh, yeah, my brother-in-law's a comedian. Uh. <laughs> and then in the early 90s, it'd be like, what do you do? I'm a comedian. Yeah, me too. I mean, it was just it was so everywhere. Um, we wanted to uh, just find a place where we could go and and bomb an experiment. So we went to this place called Big and Tall Books on Beverly Boulevard. And it was like a hipster bookstore with a performance area upstairs. And we said, uh, okay. And we just rules to keep it interesting. Uh, you can't do your material. You have to do new stuff. You have to do new stuff that you've done. And then, um, that was the rule. So you'd write it down and then bring your notebook on stage with you because you didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And that was the birth of having your notebook on stage with you, <laughs> which later somehow got misconstrued as don't practice <laughs> don't be prepared no you're wrong it's a job it's a show we had our notebook because we i didn't have time to memorize it i'd written it three hours before
1: that's how i uh, interpreted it when i first started doing because com- I, I, un- I, I used to come to the everybody i used to come to the Uncabaret shows at luna park when i was in college and that's yeah. where i first met you yeah. in like 91 and um and I would, and so what I took from that is, oh no, when you go on stage, if you want to be cool, you have to bring your notebook and you have to not be familiar with the bits. And I bombed so many times everybody, just yeah. not knowing where the, you know.
3: Oh, I know everybody thought that. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I am guilty I, of that. I didn't want to be the old guy going, you know, kids, <laughs> it is. A, well, that was the best advice I ever got in stand up was because I was a, when I, at that time, I was. Working in all of these clubs with Andy Kindler and Kathy Griffin and Janine and all these, you know, as I've said that period of my time, it was just a blur of people in suede jackets writing on their hand. Um, (laughs) And then I would go out on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday and do the Addison Improv with Kevin Rooney or with Bill Maher or Larry Miller. And so I had my feet in two generations of comedians. Uh, I'm very good friends with all of that. Bill Maher, Kevin Rooney, Larry Miller, all those guys, because I worked with them all when I was a kid. And I was with my peers, Janine and everybody else. Um, But I would go out and do all the stuff that I was doing in the alternative rooms. And it just, I was very angry that the audience wouldn't, weren't ready for it because I would just go on like I was at Luna Park. Mm -hmm. And people were like, what the fuck is this? You're in Dallas. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then Kevin Rooney uh, said one night, you know, it's a show. (laughs) You're doing what you're doing, but it's still a show. There's a mic and a light, and you're on a higher plane than everyone else. You're up on a box. It's a show. And they want to like you. But the precursor to that is they want to at least think that you like them. Right. And the minute those two, and he said them just like that in one day, in one minute. And I was a better comedian the next show because what I, just by my attitude towards what I was doing changed. I was able to do all the same stuff. But I just had. I was just a more open performer about it. It was. It wasn't like here's something else you're not going to get. Oh, that's. It was, Let me show you something. That's
1: such baby. That, that and that's almost. I, I see that like with baby comics, sometimes mm-hmm. where they feel like. Uh,
3: and it's just fear.
1: They just I, I, fear I, of bombing. I guess it is. I guess it is. They control the situation more by, at least in their own minds, like I'm going to write so far over the audience's head. They're not even going to fucking know. And not because I'm smarter than they are. And the second you do that, it's like, well, then neither one of you are really enjoying that experience, yeah. I don't think.
3: Well, it's, 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 you're not going to, I'm not going to be vulnerable and tr- try my best and then bomb. I'll tell you I'm going to bomb. Mm-hmm. And I'll be in charge of the situation.
0: When you started doing that, like when you started to treat it more as a show, did you feel like, you had to change anything verbally, or would you sort of just no, just not at all. Attitude? It
3: was just attitude. It's just attitude, and I get that. A, and you realize that a lot, like when you talk about, you know, when you do politics, like if I when I go on like real time with Bill Maher or something like that, you know, I, I'm I'm a bomb throwing progressive like anybody else, uh, probably listening to this, <laughs> but I have great friends that are on the other side of the political spectrum, and and I've Talk to people that I really don't like, but if if you just like, okay, I, I understand your perspective. And I understand that you think that you the way you do. Here, let me ask you a question from my point of view. And you'll find when you do that, people are just much more open. Instead of just going like all internet conversations, like, I like this, you're a communist, you're a fascist, end of conversation. Right. You know, if you just like, I understand. You're an American, I'm an American, we both love our country, we have very different views about it. Explain to me why this happens. And I go crazy. Well, that is the first, That I
1: believe that is the first rule of the uh, seven habits of highly effective people. <laughs> Seek first to understand. <laughs> Seek first, so, so few people actually want to shove their point of view in your fucking face rather than actually trying to understand the situation.
3: That's very interesting you say that. I had a friend who was a comic back from those days who had that book and said, <laughs> it's a really great book, you should really read it. And I bought it and I never opened it and ended up giving it away at a show at Luna Park. I had a show at <laughs> Luna Park where I gave away all my self-help books, <laughs> uh, all of them unopened. And that one specifically, I remember being not re- remotely creased and the <laughs> like guy not even who, a flip through and the guy who read it. Was Judd what? Apatow, <laughs> <laughs> the guy who said you should read this book. Like, oh, uh, whatever, uh, whatever. All right, Judd, good we're, luck.
1: We're on that young comedian special in '93, Judd. Good luck, pal. <laughs> I remember that young that young comedian special that had Ray Romano, Janine
3: Tempe, Arizona.
1: They put her in a flower print dress. Yes. Uh, uh, clearly, someone was trying to girl her up in the traditional sense. Uh, Judd Apatow, Bill Bellamy, and I think Dana Carvey hosted. Yep. Maybe I think
3: that was in Tempe, Arizona.
1: Yeah, and a young, spry Andy Kindler who was jumping around on stage like a grasshopper. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, that was an interesting special. If anyone can dig it up, because you're watching, you're watching a lot of people really on the precipice of figuring out who they are, and then seeing where they ended up going, and seeing that that was kind of their first. Television, big television thing. Yeah. I mean, Romano was like 34 when he did that.
3: Yeah, and I have was, a lot of I have a lot of television. I wish wasn't television.
1: I remember watching <laughs> you in '94. I went to see Buster's Happy Hour, <laughs> the Buster Poindexter comedy show yeah. the VH1 I was know, doing.
3: I know what you're talking about. Yes,
1: <laughs> this was one of my favorite moments of all time. Is that Dana? They the Buster introduces the next comic who's supposed to be Dana, but there's a fuck up in the prompter or the or the cue card or whatever. So he introduces Carlos Mencia, and he goes, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Carlos Mencia! And then Dana walks out without missing a beat going, Hey everybody, it's crazy to be Latino! <laughs> and it's like everyone fucking lost their minds. Of course they didn't use it, but that was an amazing... <laughs> such an amazing my moment. Favorite,
3: my, my favorite story from uh, like that period, I was, uh, all those shows, when literally every channel had 18 stand-up shows. I was doing the A-list, which... By the second Sandra Bernhard's season. A-List? Uh, this was the first season, the Richard, Richard Lewis, Lewis A-List. Yeah. Okay. But it was the A-List, and then Sandra Bernhard took it over, and it became a list. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but I was standing backstage with Richard Lewis, who I lived one house away from at the time in Los Angeles. I've never talked to him, but I'd see him every day. And we're standing backstage, and, I, and I, I'm about to say, you know, I'm your neighbor. I, I live right next to you on blank, blank drive. And I go, you know, and he just goes, I can't talk right now. I'm getting ready to go on. Please. I can't talk right now. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> like, go fuck myself.
1: Wow. <laughs> well, he no, really I is think. that neurotic.
3: He really is. I ne- and I never said it. I was like, all right.
2: <laughs> Did <Yeah>. Fuck you. <laughs> he so tried you never- to say it afterwards. He's like, don't talk to me right now. I'm coming off of the stage. <laughs> really,
3: Don't
1: talk to me. I'm not doing anything at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> <It> really
3: exploded. <laughs>
1: um, and then I, I think... Did, I've, I think you've been pretty public about this at least in your in your stand up and stuff that I've seen at Largo but shortly after that period you you had a little you had kind of a meltdown <laughs> yeah so what ha- what happened exactly
3: I had a little comic book store called Meltdown uh-huh. <laughs> no, I would uh, I started doing you know I started doing stand up really really young and I just did it all through college and was did it full you know I just did it all the time I mean it was my whole life and I really drove myself really hard and I was Um, I was just on stage at, in San Francisco, uh, and by that time I was headlining and I was in my mid twenties and I was, I remember I was doing three one hour shows that night. Um, and I was about 20 minutes into my first show. And you know, when you're on stage, you can have the flu and you walk on stage and you're fine.
1: Yeah. Adrenaline.
3: Yeah. And then it's over. But I've just, I'd just, I'd done it so much. i just done it so much. And it was that that went away. The adrenaline went away. And I literally just had what I know now. I'd, I didn't know it at the time. I had a panic attack in the middle of a set. And I was just on stage and I just thought, I can't be here. Like my heart was racing. I was outside of myself looking at myself. I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah many. Yeah, you know what they're like. And, and to have it on stage and knowing, like, not only do I have to do another 40 minutes, I have to do it two more times. Um, and I just, like, I just said, uh, I forget what I said exactly, but I, I said, I'll be right back. And I just walked off stage. <laughs> and uh, What club? Uh, Cobbs Comedy Club Cobbs. in San Francisco. Uh, and I walked off stage, and the owner of the club, the uh, a man who, who has the name Tom Sawyer, um, he was whittling. When I walked out. Um, I walked off stage. Trick somebody to paint a fence for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you keep paying me in glass doorknobs. <laughs> uh, I walked out of the showroom and he was sitting in the in the front area and he just went. He looked up at me and looked down at his watch. And he went, "Who's on stage right now?" And I went, "No one." <laughs> and I just walked into the bathroom and just kind of stood in the stall for a minute, like, ah. and then it was like, and then I, and then the fact that I did walk off was. Made it like okay, you can leave if you have to, and I sort of collected myself, walked back on stage, finished the show, finished both shows, and but then I just had, you know, I, I had stage fright for like two years. Really? Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. Just for having never had it, paralyzing stage fright that uh, that I'd have another panic attack on stage, and just sort of melted down. And you know, when you're twenty, when you're twenty six, twenty seven, if you don't flip out, you've done something wrong. You think you know, so? I think I, it, everybody around that time. You sort of crash and burn to one degree or another. Um and I, you know, I was a very I was I was raised largely unsupervised. <laughs> I was the fifth child of six kids with parents that had other things to do than watch kids <laughs> mm-hmm. drink. Um and so I was, you know, I didn't really I kind of I kind of parented myself and I wasn't a very good uh, I didn't have good boundaries for me. I wasn't a great parent to me. For to yourself, I wasn't a good parent to me. Uh, and then you learn, you know, and then I, and then I, you figured it out, and you know, you just go forward. The pa- the panic attacks. Was, fortunately, I I pimped it out into like a one man show, and so it paid for itself.
1: Well, no, that's good. I mean, because I mean, to be able to do something constructive with something horrible like that is sort yeah. of the gift of what it means to be an artist. I think.
3: Yes, and it's a terrible thing when you don't know what's going on. And you think you're going crazy. I mean, because I had no, no, I didn't know what panic attack was. I didn't know what panic disorder was. I didn't know what, you know, I couldn't, and then it was like another uh, period of time. There's like, I went like 11 days without ever sleeping more than two, uh, two and a half hours a night.
1: I had something very yeah. similar when I was twenty, and I didn't know what it was yeah. at the time. And you, and you, it feels like it's a physical you're, thing. You're dying. You think you're dying, yeah. Yeah. and then it becomes the panic attack becomes like a shock collar, like a dog. Like they start living in fear of the shock. Yes. Without ever actually, I mean, like if you use a shock collar on a dog, you only really have to do it once or twice. Yeah. And then after that, there's a little beeping sound that precedes the shock. And when a dog, when the dog, then you, it's just the beep. And then they fear and that's the same thing with panic it's attacks vicious,
3: it's a vicious circle because the anxiety of the panic attack produces the panic attack and 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 insomnia is the worst thing in the world and uh but then you but then if you you learn no that's somnambulistic hypervigilance your body feels under siege and refuses to let itself relax because it feels threatened when someone told you that that was the thing
1: that must have changed it for it you almost like instantly your jaw
3: drops like like a droopy cartoon. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then you just get uh, you know, get some pills and get your life together. <laughs> and Pils, so <laughs> pills and surgery. That's
1: good advice, kids.
0: Get some pills and get <laughs> your uh, life just together.
3: Just some trepanning
1: will take care of that. Well, so. It was
3: true. You know, I went to all of these homeopathic people and they were all a waste of time and money. It was just an utter avalanche of new age bullshit that did nothing. And I really wanna believe a lot of that stuff. But if you go to a foot reflexologist and say my car doesn't work, they'll find out a way to solve your sure through foot reflexology and uh, I got some pills and they were awesome it took them for a long time Well, and, uh, <laughs> and my new agey friends would go you know you're still feeling your anxiety you're just masking it with medication I was like yes that's what it says in the label of the fucking pill <laughs> you know in the winter time I still feel the cold I mask it with a coat <laughs> what is your addiction to suffering <laughs> <laughs> you know move on
1: i always found that with panic attacks that when when i realized that it was a physiological reaction oh, it's and amazing, not an, yeah. and then and i realized like oh if i can Keep my heart rate down. It's not going to pump adrenaline through my body at 100 miles an hour, and you can't you can't relax and have a panic attack at the exact same time. It's impossible. Yeah. So if you can keep your heart rate down, then it that really that doesn't cure everything forever, but it is very you know you get to that point where you're like, oh, is this the crossroads? Am I about to freak out? Yeah. And if you can if you can ebb that before you go into that mode, and then-
3: comedians and musicians who've never had that aren't that great. You know, I, I believe that people that are driven to those extremes in their behavior, that also allows them to go to more creative places. I mean, if, if you don't, you, you know, show me a guy that doesn't have problems, and I'll show you a really boring performer mm-hmm. and a really uninteresting writer, uh, because you have to write from those things. And um, uh, it, so it's and it's more true even musically, I mean, than, than anything else. Um and it, it, once you do realize that, and you're able to step back and and still use it, but live your life happily, that's that's the that's the goal. Um, and it is it, it's it's tricky because for a while you're living like with a gun to your own head because you don't know if you're going to be. Yeah. it's a, it's a terrible feeling to uh, to think like, oh, I just wish I was like everybody else. <laughs> people <laughs> just go to the movies and have fun. <laughs> yeah, you know.
1: But then the truth is that a lot of those people are probably. Yeah, <laughs> Screaming
3: inside Oh of course yeah. yeah And you're just like Walking around your parking Like I can't jerk off again <laughs> Yeah <laughs> My you can. cock looks like The handlebar grip Of a child's bike <laughs> I'm Blood. gonna cum streamers <laughs> My, Mine looks like A beginner ceramic
1: ashtray There you go yeah. <laughs> uh, But I, I, uh, I just want to Shift gears
3: When your wh- cock looks like, I'm not a stress ball <laughs> <laughs> Yes you are <laughs>
1: I wanna shift gears a little bit because I I, I, I wanna to get to the I wanna to get to your obsession with Ed Wood and Planet of the Apes and Vampirella and you know, yeah. like your relationship. Fun stuff. That's all great that's all great stuff. Well you and Jonah bonded pretty you're gonna, hard
3: you're gonna edit all of that other stuff out, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 yeah, it's gone uh, you, 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 I'm assuming these shows are heavily posted yeah 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 <laughs> we do a ton of uh, we also auto-tune each and every one of
2: our voices we're gonna we're
3: gonna pro-tools the
2: shit yeah. out of this
1: you know yeah, we exactly. gotta we, got, we also gotta drop in the you're listening to the nerdist yeah. podcast K- 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you guys bonded over Ed Wood cause that's Jonah's favorite movie
2: and... I
3: was astounded when you said that I was so uh, yeah I was like meeting a member of a secret club. It
2: does feel like that sometimes yeah, and it's it's not it's everyone likes that movie but no one seems to love it as much as anyone else I ever yeah, met. Oh, like, God,
3: I love that movie so
2: it's, much. It's, it's my favorite movie of all time. And I, I forgot, you. I don't know how it came up. We are just backstage at Meltdown, and you just...
3: Yeah, you we were s- talking about phones. You were showing me your phone for some reason, yeah, and you showed me that you had the whole movie on your phone. Yeah,
2: I always, I've like, I keep it with me.
3: Yeah, and, uh, uh, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. and I told him the, the weird story. You know, I have, I have two really weird stories about that movie, but, but the one of them was that I... Joel Hodgson, I knew about Plan 9 from outer space um, through like Tom Kenny and those guys uh, when I first started out. Um, I had never seen Glenn or Glenda. I'd heard about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tom Kenny and his roommate at the time, later my roommate in Boston, a guy named Dan Spencer, uh, showed me Glenn or Glenda and on an old, you know, and my head exploded. I just thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And then I saw Plan 9 and I was like, I love this movie. There's just something about it. There's something. It's like when you listen to, like an early punk record, like I don't want to say the Sex Pistols record because it was too well produced. Yeah, that's a good But one. if you listen to like Los Angeles by X, you know you or any of
2: those germs, early germs. Yeah, started. early germs,
3: early Buzzcocks. You can just yeah. hear all the flaws and the and the missed chords and the, yeah. and the bad playing
2: and the stick accidentally hitting the rim instead yeah. of the drum. Yeah, yeah.
3: But but the intention is there. The intention is so clear that the passion for the music is so there and plan nine is kind of the same way to me he can't do a fucking thing right but the intention is there there's just nothing but affection for what he's trying to do and i really do it, it it's it's that that marriage of sort of like benevolent enthusiasm and 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 profound incompetence, but what makes uh, that come just, together in a beautiful way?
1: But, <laughs> but what makes that just like not bad? Like William Hung, like well, that guy's very passionate about his music, but he can't really, you know, like yeah. what what is the difference between?
3: I don't know. I don't know. It just sometimes it sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> you yeah, you the, the fact that he Glenn like finishes is, it. Yeah, Glenn, yeah. Glenn or Glenda is great. Planet Nine from Outer Space is great. Orgy of the Dead, not that great. Not that great. The Edward movie that I'm in, I woke up early the day I died. Made in 1998. Uh, the last surviving Edward script. Holy shit. Not that great. <laughs> <laughs> not that great. But uh, you know, sometimes it just sometimes it just works. You know. Um, uh, it, it's an, inex- that's the beautiful thing. It's inexplicable. You never know, you know? Uh, but so, so he was showing me that. And, and my two stories about that is I was so into it. When that movie came out, I went berserk. I was like, I have to be in this movie. And I, I did audition for the movie and I still have my script that I got from ICM with my part highlighted, mm-hmm. which was, uh, Max Casella played it in the movie. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so that was weird. And then I ended up living the movie <laughs> in a weird way. Because uh, if you see the movie, there's a character, the character of Vampira, who was uh, the first person to, like, ironically host horror movies on television. She was Elvira in the mid-50s.
1: I'm sorry, I said Vampirella. Oh, that's okay. That's cool.
3: that, that doesn't matter. She's dead. Okay. okay. Sure. okay. Um, <laughs> nothing matters. Nothing matters. Well, of course, anymore, she's yeah. dead. She's vampirous. She's <laughs> been dead for <laughs> thousands of years. She's she's now non undead. Oh, okay. Right. Um, she uh, she um, uh, I ended up interviewing her for a documentary I wanted to do about horror movie hosts, which is still the only job I think I'm really qualified to do. Um, and we became really good friends. Uh, and she didn't have a telephone at the time. And I wrote her. a le- uh, I, And this is 1995 right after the movie came out. I did this documentary for the Sci-Fi Channel, um, met her, interviewed her, became her friend, and then I would just like, she just seemed lonely, I'd write her, like, you know, she'd write me and I'd write her back. We, we lived in the same city, but we became pen pals, because she didn't want a phone. She was very reclusive. And then I would take her out to lunch, once a, once a month, once every two, three weeks. And we just became friends, and then over the years, we just never stopped becoming being friends. You know, we just constantly stayed friends. How old is she at this time? She's in her uh, late seventies, early eighties. Uh, then her sort of support group falls away, uh, and I end up basically uh, doing for her what Edward did for Bela Lugosi in the movie that inspired me to contact her in the first place. <laughs> wow. Uh, and there's a there's a yeah, it was very bizarre. Um, you forget- you know you, of course, her real name was Myla Nurmi, and you forget she's you know then she just becomes your friend and you forget that she's vampira and for a while, like whenever I would see plan nine, I'm like, oh, I gotta call her, I think I <laughs> think you know, i I think I gotta got pay her gas bill or something oh, like. oh well, you, you know, were a support you were helping oh her. No, we, no, we 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 helped her out um and and then the but the weirdest story was I had just started on the Simpsons and I'd been there for, I guess, two years, and we uh, had our first uh, daughter. And so I just was crushed with time. You know, I've got a baby and a day job, and um, Myla uh, calls me or writes me and says, I have to move. They're tearing down the building that I'm in. And it's like, okay, the one thing I don't have time to do right now is find first- floor housing within three blocks of a supermarket for a woman in her early 80s on a fixed income with a dog and a cat that can't cross a four-way street to get to necessities. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I went into a store in North Hollywood called Halloween Town, yeah, which is a Goth supply store. Is
1: it, that, that Is that Wayne's store? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, Wayne store. It was uh, you know, if you want to go camping, you go to Big Five sports. If you want to be goth, go to Halloween. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> They're your supply outlets. And I walked in and there was a vampire shirt on the wall. And I said, Do you know anybody that I could pay to help me find an apartment for the woman on that shirt? The real woman? And they just went, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> As if my coming was predicted in their ancient texts.
1: <laughs> it says, and then it's all like in serigraph yes, There you yeah. are. One if day,
3: a man <laughs> with tattooless arms will walk into the store. <laughs> that's, that's, that's,
1: that's Wayne and Jackie's yeah, store. Way Wayne, Wayne 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 mm. did the effects for House of Thousand Corpses.
2: Right, now, yeah, if you if you play the uh, Danzig Two record backwards, it <laughs> tells of Dana Gould's coming.
1: Yeah, no, will come to rescue.
3: And so I met this lovely Goth couple uh matt and gab uh he looked like alice cooper she looked like alice Alice cooper Cooper (laughs) they're both no they're both lovely people and they were just you know he was in a band trying to get going called wednesday 13 and she was a photographer and and they knew who milo was and and loved her and together the three of us (laughs) and we looked quite odd like look at those the, that goth couple and their parole officer i don't know <laughs> the, i don't know who the guy in the on shirt is um we we became really uh wonderful friends and we together found uh, her a lovely place to live and over the course of packing up her stuff found like a bunch of money that she had like oh i thought i lost that this is great i was like it was literally it was literally like the greatest day and we moved her in and she was so happy. She was like, oh my God, this is a, she had a bungalow. She was, we got her one of the last bungalow courts in Hollywood. And she literally had her own bungalow. It was just, you couldn't have designed it better. And we're, I'm sitting in her house on that day. And uh, I'm thinking, yeah, this is, this is good. You know, she found a bunch of money that she thought she'd lost and she's in her bungalow court and everybody's happy. And and then I was literally, just as I had that feeling of like, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. I just hear behind me, ow, 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 and I look around and Mila's dog has bitten Gabrielle right in the tit. Oh! And it was just one of those like, Argh! And so we spent that day, uh, ended that day in the uh, emergency oh, room. Not in the in the, in the uh, sternum would be a better place. Oh, in, okay. It didn't really, wasn't going for milk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no good dude goes unpunished, but that was, yeah, it, it was, uh, and, and I'm still friends with them. Uh, that guy, Matt is now Rob Zombie's bassist known to the world as Piggy Demon. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's who it is. What a weird small world. Yeah, do you know him? Do you know him? I don't know him do you very know well. Piggy? There's a question I... I don't know... I There's don't... a question I haven't asked since I was in the Lord of the Flies <laughs> cast. <laughs> <laughs> Where is that conch?
1: Yeah, oh. Hey, is that a boulder... Crush. <laughs> yeah.
3: uh, hey, look at that raw.
1: I feel like mm-hmm. I probably do. Rob used to have these barbecues and have all like, the yeah. band bad members come and like John 5 and like yeah. you know, all yeah, these yeah, people yeah. and Blasco and you know, all these people that Play with him, and uh, those are those are really fun.
3: They're not they're not together anymore. They're both uh, moved on to different uh, uh, right partners in life. Uh, I know them both. I'm good friends with them both. They're the nicest people on earth, both of them. And uh, there was a time I, I don't think he'll mind me saying this, and Mile is gone, um, where the they had a a problem in the building uh, that she was living in, and she had uh uh, uh they had a cockroach infestation and you know it happens in low-income areas so she had to go live in a hotel for a couple days and matt and i had to go clean out this room in her apartment which was had a problem and so it was gnarly um... so we ended up going to home depot and basically buying like hazmat suits (laughs) because it was just cockroaches and cat pee and 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 just stuff that it it looked like a scene from the movie seven right And and we were just looking at each other and these like booties and gloves and the mask and just like my just my eyes and, and just sweat and his eyes and mascara and sweat <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and just looking at each other and, and just in this fetid room, just laughing at the insipidness of the whole thing. Uh, but we'll always have that bond. I see him now, I email him now, and it's always like we were a nom together. <laughs> but he is—he's one of those guys, like, like I'm going to space and I can't take my kidneys. Hang on to them. He'll hang on to them. <laughs> They're both really nice. And people. when did she pass away? She passed away in uh, January of 2008. Oh wow. Yeah, or 2009, I forget. Um, but she was—you know—she was one of those people that just, you know. There's famous people and who make a lot of money, uh, and they're well off. And then there's famous people that are famous, but then they don't. You r- don't realize that they're not making any money, <laughs> right. you know. And mm-hmm. and she just sort of survived. She's like you know, and and especially in, in Hollywood, people fall through the cracks all the time. And uh, I got to know her, and it was she was, she was lucky. We were both lucky because we both benefited from the friendship but you know the fact that we knew each other and and we're friends uh, that was a lucky thing for her because she didn't have anybody to help her move and there aren't institutions set up to help Mm -hmm. a lot of seniors so it was weird the other weird thing about it was she was also friends because she was a very iconic character in the 50s and 50s LA you know, when Vampire first came on in 1954, there was nothing like it on television. I and mean, if you look at the average show that was on television in 1954, it's, it's early *Ozzy and Harriet. I mean, it was the 50s, but it was really still the 40s. It was, you know, people think of the 50s, they're thinking of the very late 50s and the very early 60s. Elvis uh, really reaching his peak in like 57. And it was a very primitive time. And she's in this low-cut dress with this 17-inch waist and making really off-color jokes. There was really nothing like her on television. It was a local show. It was only in Los Angeles. And within two months, she was in Time and Newsweek.
1: Wow. uh,
3: And Life. Uh, It was a big splash. And so she became friends with a lot of flamboyant homosexuals that were a part of that sort of underground bohemian culture in Los Angeles at that time. And when she passed... I was through the LA coroner's office listed as their contact. And so for about a month, I was getting these calls with these tragic septuagenarian gay men from the 50s. But it was like, I would just get this message, just like, boop, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> it's Orlando Divine calling. <laughs> and they, all had, like, they all had these insane names. I'm, I swear to Christ, I wish I said them. I got your name from Tulip to Valentura. <laughs> and I am just beside myself. It, you know, it's... Cotton Smiles Terwilliger gave me your number, and I need, I need to talk to you. I got your neighbor from from Butterscotch, La Jolla. And I need to talk about my really cool.
1: Where is she buried now?
3: Uh, she is... Uh, we. Uh, she was laid to rest in the um, Hollywood Forever Cemetery. She's in Hollywood Forever! Uh, oh, that's only, nice. Not only is she in Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and I... This is not on. This is not intentional, Uh, but one of the you know she wanted to be uh, cremated and all that uh, you know stuff you don't need to know. Um, The plot that she has through no, not intentionally, she's right in front of Darren McGavin. Oh wow! Oh wow! (laughs) He's always on her tail.
1: (laughs) That's really they did. They did such a nice. They did such an amazing job revitalizing Hollywood forever. Yeah. It's really just kind of a cool place to just go. Yeah, I, became, I became really
3: good friends with
1: them. <laughs> <laughs> They're really great. Like the whole, good. and the movies that they do during the summer. And the, yeah. It, I Sanespia. mean, it's, it's, such, a great, it's yeah. such a great place. It's a, it's I, a they, great they, place. For
3: people who don't know, San Espia is they, they and, and it's the reason I love living in Los Angeles. I really do. I couldn't, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up watching like Emergency
1: <laughs>
0: and
3: Adam, SWAT. SWAT. Adam 12 and all these Jack Webb shows, and they all, they're all they all shot on location in L.A., and I just, like, in the Brady Bunch, I was like, I want to live there. <laughs> I never wanted to live in New York. I always wanted to live in L.A., where when I was a kid growing up in Massachusetts, I was like, that's where I want to go. Yeah. And you you uh, you go there to the Hollywood First Cemetery, and they show movies at night on the side of a mausoleum.
1: It's so great. And yeah. I'm
3: like, I live in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is like, and like nobody does Halloween the way LA does Halloween. You know, it's just like, it's just, nobody comes close.
1: I saw, I saw the exorcist on the side of the mausoleum for Synespia and it's just like, you go, it's like the sun just goes down. Everyone brings blankets and lawn chairs. You pack a picnic. You see a fucking great movie on the side of the, Hollywood Forever is literally the
0: first place I went to when I came to LA. Really? I want to go to Hollywood Forever. It's great.
2: uh, I've seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure there. I've seen Dawn of the Dead there. I smoked some pot and watched Holy Mountain, which I do not recommend doing. I do not recommend watching Holy Mountain stoned at a cemetery. It'll mess you
3: up. My uh, my my oldest daughter's first outing, I believe, was uh, we took her to see Night of the Hunter at Hollywood <laughs> Forever. Uh, but I said to it was funny. I said to my manager, uh, I said, "You got to go to this thing. It's great." And he's like, "Yeah." I have a really good friend in that mausoleum. I don't think I'm gonna go. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, there's
2: yeah. still
1: people that had lives that
3: I
2: are it, here. That it's true? weird. It's weird. I didn't go for the first year because I was. I lived right next to it. I lived on El Centro and Willoughby, just right next to the cemetery. And I was just. I was like, no, nah, I don't know if I could do that. I. Had, I never really liked cemeteries, and I. I finally went, and I rode my bike in. I didn't have to wait in traffic. It was great, and just it was this one of the best experiences of my life. And then when I was leaving, I was like, "Wow, I should just come to this every time." and then uh, someone honked their horn and I turned my head and I crashed my bike <laughs> and re- like oh. just tumbled over all these raised marble um you know Orthodox Russian Jew and like I just like kept on hitting the corners of each one as <laughs> I tumbled down and like I an grave. David, yeah I fell down face first. <laughs>
3: Right. No, it's I was. It's funny to like do you know, this. My address as a child was Nine Cemetery Street. Ugh. Oh wow! It was, it was like just this curvy. Ro- this is absolutely true. It was a little curvy road in my hometown of Hopedale Massachusetts. And at the end, I lived on the corner. I lived at the in, these are these are everything I'm about to tell you was true. I lived at the intersection of Cemetery Street and Hope Street. Wow! <laughs> and if you go to my Facebook page and the photos, there's a photo of the sign. Um, I at the end of the street. A, the street ended and then there's the cemetery at the end of the street lived my friend, Russell Putnam, Russell Irving Putnam. His initials were RIP. <laughs> he grew up across the street from a cemetery. And we had this big gang of kids and my neighbor, we grew up and we would just go in the cemetery and play on our bikes because it was closer than the park. We were just like, when's dinner? Six. Oh, it's five. Let's just go to the cemetery. Yeah. And my mother still has this big article they wrote in the local paper, Hopedale Village Cemetery, place where children play. <laughs> <laughs> and you couldn't help but read it out loud that way yeah, when you exactly, were there. Yeah.
0: That's what I did. <laughs> yeah, learn, yeah. I learned, I I would ride my bike to the top of the street and go to St. Mary's in, in Lowell, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. You know. Yeah. Uh, technically, in Tewksbury, it's the town over, but right next to where I lived. And, uh, famous I alcoholic
3: Jack Kerouac's hometown. Yes.
0: A lot of famous alcoholics. Rape, you know, you really? got everyone.
3: All goes
2: are, are famous All It goes, are it goes all saying. Crackheads,
3: alcoholics, we yeah.
0: got them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, we had a. There was a frog pond up there, and I would go up to the cemetery and catch frogs all the time.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, when you go there, like a, get like frogs. Weird,
2: yeah, um, and
1: then I learned to drive. Taking it back to Tom Sawyer. Yeah.
3: Yeah. All the. Uh, a lot, <laughs> who's on stage?
1: <laughs> C- cemeteries he's were got weird. These bags of frogs. Who's on stage? <laughs> 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 Tom? He's no shoes. His pants are rolled up. Yeah. Muddy toes. If you put
3: those frogs down, Sam Kennison needs some coke. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've smuggled them in the frogs. <laughs> Tom was one of the first guys. Saw- toads. <laughs> Tom Sawyer at Cobbs Comedy Club was one of the first guys to book Sam Kennison out of LA. No shit. Uh-huh. Tom knows comedy.
1: Tom's great. I, I know him just from, you know, yeah. through uh, doing stuff with SF Sketchfest and, you yeah. know, like performing a bunch. He I knows never, comedy. Never got to perform at the old Cobbs. I've only performed at the airplane hangar that is the, the new Cobbs. Yeah, the new so Cobbs. Yeah.
3: Well, there's the old Cobbs and the old, old Cobbs, which was where it used to be on uh, a legendary club in San Francisco. on... Union Street, or someplace, it was way down the wharf. It was right next to like Happy Time Donuts. Mm-hmm. And he, Tom booked Sam Kennison in like 1984 or three. Uh, and Sam just did this bit about the, the guy at the donut store next door. He's like, Yeah, you know, he's in there. You go in there next door. He's making donuts. He's making donuts. And I'm just afraid I'm going to be in there one day. Like, Hey, I'll have a crawler. Sure, hang on. Let me get to the crawler. Reaches to get a crawler. Comes out with a magnum. I'm not what
1: daddy wanted.
3: <laughs> <laughs> i
1: want to ask you a couple questions oh before sam we're... i watched
3: you do so much cocaine
1: <laughs> somewhere he's snorting a cloud yeah, yeah. um yeah it's true
3: of the street street
2: these clouds.
1: Um, but uh i want to talk a little bit about your involvement with the simpsons because okay. you you did ep the simpsons for for a while
3: yeah well i co-eped
1: you co-eped this is nothing but um, how would because now, you know, this, uh, there, it was kind of it was in the news because the ratings of the show have gone down, which I mean, listen, 23 seasons of 21, 22 seasons. I don't know. I mean, obviously The ratings
3: of everything has gone down. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, I, although I do feel like in the last couple of years what I've seen on the show and, and tell me I might be wrong about this, but it feels like. So they've hired a bunch of ex-Harvard Lampoon writers who are purposely making references to things that no one watching will, p- will understand unless they went to Harvard.
3: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I will say this. on: I have three daughters. Uh, they're currently two, seven, and nine. Are you still working on The Simpsons? No. Oh, okay. Uh, I did a voice, and I still go over there. I was over there last week to do a DVD commentary. Yeah. I will, on the lives, on my children's soul, I have not watched the show since I left. Really? I just, I lived it 24 hours a day yeah. for seven years, and I've just, there's, there will always be something else I want to watch. Right. You know, I just, I, so I, I can't comment with any sense of authority about what's going on. I'm not. And I don't, and I don't, I don't not love the show. I, I love it. It's a part of my life, but I I just like, and and I don't I don't like. I'm never watching that show again. I'm just like I like. Oh, I, it's like. It's like um, any show that you love, and then you fall off, and like I gotta, I gotta watch that. Oh, I totally oh, understand. Yeah. I gotta catch up on eleven seasons.
2: That's why we didn't go on the uh, Simpsons. That's why you not want to go on the Simpsons ride at uh, Universal Studios. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> well, there you go. That you know exactly what yeah, I Because yeah,
2: you, yeah. you went
1: on a Simpsons ride for seven yeah,
3: years. Uh, we uh, were at we were at Universal Studios Halloween Hunt last Sunday, and like we're gonna go on the Simpsons ride, and I said something like, uh, "That's okay."
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like, "Like, yeah, me and Deanna are gonna go. Anyone else?" And like, he was like, uh, "Um."
3: Mm no
2: i'm not no. one of these people who get, it'll,
3: it'll, hey here we go it'll be like going to work
1: <laughs> <laughs> but just make it a little little more queasy
3: yeah but it is hard i will let me say in their defense you really don't know how hard it is to come up with stories when you've got 23 seasons behind you of 22 episodes a season and then you get to the point of like we did that we did that we did that and then you get to the point of like well, we, we did that with Bart, but we haven't done it with lisa and then, you know, there, there are only so many ways to uh, refract. And, and I'm not negative and, about and, the show I know at all. I know, yeah. I know you're not being negative about that. And the network has also uh, changed the format of the show, or it used to be a three-act show, and now it's a four-act show, which I don't think is conducive to good storytelling. Um, so they, 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 believe it or not, for a show that is as well-oiled as that, they still sometimes find themselves um, fighting an uphill battle. I left... For a couple of reasons. One, I just felt like I was just, I felt done. I felt like it came time to come up with episodes for the next season, and I had nothing. And I just, I was just like, I think I'm, I think I'm just done. And I really miss performing, and and I was also a big fan of myself. <laughs> and kind of wanted to get back to that.
1: Did you write uh, the joke, uh, Monster Put Card in Wallet?
3: That joke is in my episode. monster put card in wallet. Uh, my, my favorite joke in that episode that is from uh, a, an episode called um was that's the- got a brand new badge okay Homer basically Homer uh, starts a home security company, which and all the episodes come from your experiences in life that's how you do get stories as long as you're alive, things are going to happen to you and you'll write about them. My wife and I bought our house, and the first thing you find out when you live buy a house in l a is you have to get a private security company. <laughs> Like the police aren't enough. There, there are people that are waiting, <laughs> like coyotes, and uh, so that was my experience with West Tech. And then they and then just you know, they come over your house and it's like, uh, well, what do you want? What kind of program do you want to get? I was like, well, I thought the one that you sold me over the phone was good. Let me just show you. Can I ask you a question? Do you like rape? No. <laughs> Let me show you this. Lord Jesus do you have a monkey sensor? (laughs) I don't think I need one. What are you going to do when the apes take over? That's a pretty good point. (laughs) Your wife comes home, don't touch the bananas. (laughs) There's Little bowls of raisins all over the house. Don't touch them. Uh, uh, So we came up with that, and and there was a commercial for... uh, Homer's uh, Spring Shield, which was Homer's company where a monster breaks in on a woman and then Spring Shield comes in and he goes, uh, and, and the monster goes, friend? And Homer goes, you always have a friend with Spring Shield. And he gives him his card and the monster goes, monster put in wallet. <laughs> and I didn't write the joke. I didn't know who I saw. that. It was like at the color test. I was like, who wrote that joke? Where'd that joke come from? And, I, and nobody could remember and I had to track it down because it was so funny and it was Tom Gamble. Of uh, Gamel and Pross, and I just love that joke. It's so stupid. What was that? You're doing a commercial, and there's a monster in the commercial, but the monster is real, and it, <laughs> and doesn't understand that the commercial is a commercial. <laughs> the monster is in a reality that you are not. <laughs> and he's still gonna
1: call him later. Very meta.
3: Very very. How long meta. did it
1: take to write a Simpsons episode?
3: Uh, about you know soup to nuts, it takes about you know five to six weeks. You get that you, know, you break the story for a week, then you write an outline for a week, then you come back do notes on the outline, then you get two weeks to write the script. You come back, and then they spend like three to four weeks rewriting the script. And what was was there a storyline? It's not that, a great place to work if you think your words are precious. Because it'll get... Because it's hamburger. What's the... Uh, they just literally get your script, you read it, and then, okay, page one, interior. What do you want? I mean, it's just like, don't... It's, it's a great, because nine ti- 99 times out of 100, your words aren't that precious.
1: Right. Yeah. So uh,
3: it, it's a great...
1: Was there a storyline that you could never get pushed through that you really thought like?
3: Yes, I wanted to do a story where Lisa became goth, and I just thought it would be a natural story, and I just could not sell it. I couldn't get it through. Wow. I tried it for seven years. And that's like, you know,
2: that's the next logical step after her becoming vegetarian. It is. It's
3: perfect. And part of it was right at the beginning, right when I started, was right when Columbine happened and goth had a a, a, a bad. It wasn't. They weren't goth, but they got ascribed that. Um, and that kind of queered it for a couple of years. And then I mm. just couldn't sell it. And then Lisa getting into porn, which is another. That didn't happen. They didn't do that. Again, the natural step. I mean, in today's. Porn, such father issues. Today's and today's porn soaked world.
1: <laughs> the it. internet makes it so easy. Yeah. The only
3: way to describe it. I was. I know we I was at a, the HBO Emmy party, and I saw Sasha Grey at the a- Emmy mm-hmm. party. And I looked at her, and then I like looked away, and like you don't want to see her. You don't want her to see you and think that you recognize her. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. And then I thought. The Pope knows who she is. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 you, it's, you can't avoid it now. You can't turn on your computer without it.
1: Without seeing a young girl get choked. Yeah, yeah it's a,
3: really it is. You are at the point of
1: like, is this? I, are we done now? She's into that weird fetish porn. I, I don't think I. I don't think this noise should ever get made during sex. Like that's not a yeah, noise yeah. that you want to hear.
2: I don't want to hear a death rattle. No. Oh, yeah.
3: When it. Well, and we're very close now to like the the girls with no skin. We're we're, we're running out of. <laughs> We're running out of extremes to push. It's pretty much it's going to be like the Hellraiser guy, <laughs> just, just naked musculature. Pinheads, the Cenobites. Yeah. Oh, just naked musculature.
2: Yeah, uh, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy. Time the... to
1: play with your clitoris. <laughs> 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 Boom! The chains come out. Yeah, yeah. Hook, hook it, the vagina. Exactly. Um, it's, it's, oh, the, bu- the, the box p-
2: becomes a dildo. The paint. Yeah, the puzzle box. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it is amazing how quickly uh, human beings, when left to their own devices, they just drill down. How <laughs> oh, deep can we go? That's like the old Andy Bruce bit: leave a guy in a desert island, and then an hour and a half he'll fuck mud. <laughs> like, where do we go? Uh, your uh, uh, your wife Sue. <laughs> what an interesting. <laughs> What a weird jo- what a weird
1: step. Fuck mine. Oh your wife. I'm That's sorry. In true. my head I was I had anchored on to <laughs> I had anchored on to you being at the HBO Emmy party.
3: Oh, okay, Sasha Gray. Speaking of Sasha Gray getting banged <laughs> so sorry. Speaking of Sasha Gray getting gang gangbanged, your grandmother was the first
1: I, look, I'm never gonna work on HBO. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, oh, what, my wife but your wife was when I my first like big agent at the United Talent Agency in 1994, your yeah. wife, Sue, was one of my agents, and she was a junior agent at yes. the time yes. and now runs well, when, HBO.
3: Yes. <laughs> one of us has to be successful. <laughs>
1: but you told an amazing story at, at Largo <laughs> where you were in the car with your kids and one of them had to pee. And then you had the the ziplock bag.
3: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We were on the highway. I was like, which, that, that could be any story. We were on the highway, uh, and my daughter was really little and really had to pee, and it was like literally couldn't get off couldn't get off the highway Ugh. going to to Disneyland, and uh, and my wife was like, we had a Ziploc bag with like Doritos in it. We're just like, okay. Going this, and my wife stood behind her just and she nearly filled the <laughs> bag. It's like she had, When did you drink a fish tank? And then she zips it tight, and then it just is this great picture of like, and then she's like making some big call, and she's on the phone holding like a groaning <laughs> gallon bag of baby pee up <laughs> to the window. It's like you never know what the people on the other end of the phone are doing. <laughs> it's very strange because, like, I'm doing this show at Meltdown now called Carniville
1: with yeah with Keckner yeah,
3: David Keckner and I'll be on the phone and I'm like look we need to get two guys to dress up as clowns to do this one thing it's a celebration of the lowest rung of the show business ladder and I'm on the phone in the car and then my wife will get a call and you'll just see M Scorsese <laughs> <laughs> I have to take this call like, great. <laughs> We need a bullhorn and a clown suit with a knife hole. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we're almost out of time, Data Gold. I do, I do want to do one. Uh, I have so many of your bits that live in the back okay. of my head. Well, um, I'm
3: glad one of us does. <laughs> no, please.
1: The uh, I love. I always loved uh, Don Knotts. Could never be a prank caller.
3: Oh, I have a great story. Yeah, it's a great bit, and, uh, and then I'll close with a really sweet story. Uh, Uh, I grew up loving Don Knotts. Don Knotts won the Emmy every year. He played Barney Fife on The Andy Griffith Show. Won the Emmy every single year. Uh, And his voice was so incredibly specific that I realized that he could never make obscene phone calls. (laughs) I'm sure he'd like to. There are nights when he's bored up at four in the morning in a dirty bathrobe, and just pick up the phone. (laughs) Well... I've been looking at you through the bedroom window. <laughs> <laughs> Is this Don Knotts? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then I I did his voice on The Simpsons, and I ended up uh, my friend uh, Larry Karaszewski who wrote Ed Wood, with wow. Scott Alexander, his writing partner. Yeah, uh, and uh, they're they're uh, good friends of mine, and uh, they were do- showing The Ghost and Mister Chicken. At, oh yeah, a Family, a very underrated movie, very very funny movie. And, uh, and I was on this little panel talking about Don Nuts, and his daughter came up to me and said, I, "I've heard that bit of yours on the, I heard it on the, on, uh, the raw dog, uh, that bit you did about my father." And I just tensed up. And she went, "Oh, it was so funny." Oh. oh that's and i was like oh. <laughs> <laughs> how dare, you? <laughs> how dare you? you you must really hate your dad wow <laughs> yeah, it was very sweet
1: well dana gould uh Carniville is a show that you and Keckner do at meltdown once a month mm-hmm. um, and that uh, you are at We're dana started, gould on the twitter
3: at, at dana jay gould dana jay gould you're at dana, dana jay gould, gould is some douchebag realtor what
1: the <laughs> fuck yeah
3: I don't know he's a douchebag, but it's a safe assumption.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I I could talk to you for four more hours, but I won't because we don't have the disc space for it. (laughs)
2: Okay. All right, then. uh, Sounds (laughs) like I understand. (laughs) Blame technology.
1: I can (laughs) hang out with you after. You (laughs) can. No. No, no. no. If it's not recorded, it's not real. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I'd love to have you back on the show again. Anytime. Okay, good. All right. Uh, Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Matt, Jonah. We're fucking it. it, it yeah. Is enjoy that it, code is that sex code well there's a neurotoxin that's being slowly pumped into the room and um that's we're getting our masks
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> now leaving nerdist.com enjoy your burrito
1: this episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Hover.com. Hover's domain name registration and management that is simple. For 10% off your new domain, go to hover.com slash nerdist. I feel
0: like I was blindsided. Because it's a competition show.
1: From the producers of Jury Duty and The Bachelor. We have
2: scoured
1: the earth for the 14 greatest reality contestants that were available during our production window